So last week, Lisa and I went to a concert on Friday night. And as we were leaving, there was everybody around us uh, had a great time. They were talking about their favorite moments, their favorite songs, everything they enjoyed about the night. Uh, a lot of conversations going on, but I couldn't help but to overhear one that was really close to us. They were two ladies right behind us that uh, were trying to talk over the volume of the crowd so I could hear what they were saying. And the one lady who was a little bit younger said to the old, older lady, uh, so did you like it? And she says, oh my gosh, I loved it. I can't wait to get home. I'm gonna blast his music. I'm gonna find all of his songs on Spotify and I'm just gonna put a playlist together. I loved it. To which the younger lady said, so wait, remind me, you thought we were coming to see Kenny G. And the other lady said, yeah, I thought this was Kenny G. We were there seeing Kenny Loggins. <laughs> I, I don't know how this lady confused the two other than their first names. There's really nothing similar about them at all. Kind of two different eras, really. One, Kenny Loggins started in the 70s, Kenny G in the 90s, and Kenny G's a saxophone player, he doesn't even sing, and Kenny Loggins does all these great hits, and I really hope this lady never finds out about Kenny Rogers, or Kenny Chesney, or <laughs> Kenny Wayne Shepherd because she's really, really gonna have a lot of disappointing moments. <clears throat> so all throughout history, for millennia, we have been chasing after, making an effort to know and worship the God with a capital G, to know who God truly is. But the problem is that we keep arriving at and finding the Kenny G of God, the lowercase g. In other words, we have believed for many, 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 many generations all across the globe that we have discovered who God truly is, but what we have done is we've made a million different versions of who God really isn't. There's the God, capital G, and then there's all of these countless God's little g. Now, you might be ready to pat yourself on the back and say, well, here we are. I know that we're worshiping the one true God, capital G, but I wanna caution you that, that what it looks like to create an idol and to be an idol worshiper, there's very little difference maybe in the millions of gods of Hinduism and them worshiping and us misunderstanding who God is, following, worshiping, learning from a God that isn't real. But he's similar enough to the real God that we've settled for him. So before we let ourselves off the hook from this Exodus warning, put that up real quick, you're probably all familiar that this is one of the 10 commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, lowercase g. You shall have no other gods before me. Paul though warns the church in Ephesus that you don't have to have a golden idol in your home or you don't have to be making a sacrifice on a pagan altar to be an idol worshiper. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 5. 
You can be sure of this, the kingdom of Christ and God will never belong to anyone who is sexually impure, who lives their life chasing sexual impurity, or greedy, who wants to fulfill their fleshly desires. For a greedy person, one who just thinks about themselves, is really an idol worshiper. He loves and worships the good things of this life more than God. Can I tell you what that means? That anyone who puts themselves in what they want before knowing God is also worshiping idols. So I think that that might include a lot more people than those that just worship false gods. Paul says that everything we put in front of God, every image that we've made that's more important to us than God is a false God. You see, the problem is that we've taken God with a capital G and we've managed to, in all of our cultures, in all of our lifestyles, in all of our schedules, in all of our finances, in all of our marriages, in all of our friendships, in our language, in our thoughts, and in the way we behave, we have carved God down to a God with a lowercase g. So we're gonna take a few minutes this morning and we're gonna unpack what it looks like for you and I to be carrying around all of these false idols, all of these lowercase g gods that we've made. Pull out your notes if you don't need to have them out. Number one, I won't ever truly know God with a capital G. I won't know the true God until I unpack the idols I carry by, number one, settling for the God of hearsay. You carry these idols because you settle for the God of hearsay. We all have at one point. There's a pretty good chance that you, like me, are on a journey of some sort in getting to know God or believe you know God because there's been something, a reputation, a knowledge, a teaching passed on to you by somebody else, a mom, a grandma, a, a dad, a grandpa, a uncle, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a friend, a relative, a coworker, somebody introduced you at some age to the idea of who God is. And that began in your life a journey in discovering for yourself. And that can be a good thing. I mean, for anyone to be introduced to something and then go on. I mean, we love it when somebody introduces us to new music that we end up loving or a restaurant that we never knew about that we end up loving. There's a place that Scott Stone introduced me to called Nick's Taco, and it's amazing. And now you've been introduced to it as well. Uh, N-I-X-T-A-C-O, it's amazing. It's a little hole in the wall in Roseville, and it was amazing. And I love that that introduced me to something new. But the problem becomes that we often stop our journey with what we are told about God. In other words, we let someone else's experience, what somebody says about God, what somebody tells us about God, be the extent of what we know about God. There's a reason that hearsay is not allowed in court. A witness can't say, well, I was talking to this dude the other day and he told me that he watched somebody get murdered. That's not allowed. They need that dude there. They need the guy that saw it to sit in the witness stand. And listen, the reason is because you can't truly know the facts if you haven't experienced them for yourselves and you can't truly know God unless you've experienced him for yourself. 
Listen to what the Bible says in Titus 2, 7 through 8. And you yourself must be an example to them. Titus was sort of a, a, a protege of Paul's. He was a partner in ministry. He was an apprentice pastor. You must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. <clears throat> Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Here's what Paul told Titus. You have to live your life. You have to use words. You have to act in a way that people understand and appreciate the Jesus you talk about. Let me say that again. He said, you need to live your life in such a way that how you live communicates as strongly as what you say about Jesus so that people can't criticize your life and then devalue the reputation of Jesus. Often, you and I, the difficulty we have with God is not with God himself, but with the people who represent God. We devalue the reputation of Christ because Christ's followers do such a poor job sometimes of representing him well. They are terrible witnesses on the witness stand of life for who Jesus is. That, however, is no excuse for you to not know God. You were never called to know God through someone else's knowledge, through their hearsay, through their actions, through their life. Yes, it's important that we live our lives in order to testify of God's goodness. The Bible says that our good works will tell people how good God really is. It will help God shine when we do good works. But it doesn't give you and I excuses as Christ followers not to know him. Listen to what Jesus himself said in John 17, three. And this is the way to have eternal life by knowing you, he's speaking in a prayer to God, the only true God and Jesus Christ referring to himself, the one you sent to earth. Listen, salvation is a free gift to you and I. It comes by God's grace. But don't you have to know God and his son in order to know the grace that God gave you through his son? The Bible says that salvation, freedom, liberty from the consequence of everything we've done to rebel against God, knowing or unknowing, comes through knowing who he is. Hebrews 11.6 says it this way. Without faith, no one can please God. And anyone who comes to God must believe that he is real. Listen, believe that he is real and that he rewards those who truly want to find him. I want you to hear this. God is terrible at hide and seek because he wants to be found. He doesn't want to hide from you. If you want to know God, he will reward you for looking for him. If you don't know God, it's not your aunt's fault, it's not your coworker's fault, it's not your spouse's fault. God wants to be known by you. God makes himself known to anyone who wants to know him. Number two is this, I won't ever truly know God until I unpack the idols that I carry by shaping God into my images. To my images. The writers of the books of the Bible 
used a lot of anthropomorphic descriptions of God. In other words, they gave God human characteristics. In other words, they would say, um, and, and God hears with his ears and he looks and his eyes are set upon this and with his hand he does this and his, the mighty strength of his arm and he sets his feet on the, the stool and he sits in a throne and he laughs and he gets angry and he speaks and he does all of these things that seem very human. And the purpose of that language is to make God accessible and understandable and seem like us. We identify with all of those things because we have those natures and characteristics. That's the pros of anthropomorphic descriptions of God. The cons outweigh those though. Here's why, because when we give God human characteristics, we make God one of us. We make God human. You say, well, wasn't Jesus human? He was. He, he had two natures that had coexisted at the exact same time as divine nature and as human nature at the exact same time. Only God can pull that off. But he is not human. God doesn't have ears. He doesn't have a nose, he doesn't have eyes, he doesn't have hands or arms, he doesn't sit. He doesn't laugh or cry or even get angry like we do. Those are all human, anthropomorphic descriptions of God helping us understand him better. It's important that you know that. And you say, well, wait a second, Pastor Chris. I like to see God as a big, friendly grandpa who just has all these little angels around him. And that's fine. If you want to make him Santa Claus and that helps you, that's good. Just know that you will never truly know God until you release God from these limiters that we've put on him. I want to read you Jesus's words as he's in this conversation with a woman who's a Samaritan who traditionally the Jews despised. Jesus himself was a, what we would call a traditional Jew. Samaritans were actually Jews as well, but they weren't considered Jews by the Jews for this reason. They built a temple on Mount Gerizim. You can read this in the Bible. And they believed that Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, was the holy temple of God. This is where God's holy presence resided was on Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. And so the Jews thought that that was absolute blasphemy and heresy. But Jesus at this well was speaking with a woman and he has this conversation with her. But the time is coming, Jesus told her, when true worshipers, not Jews, not Samaritans, all those who truly know God will worship the Father in spirit and truth, the knowledge of God. In fact, the time is now here. It's now that that is happening. And these are the kinds of people the Father wants to be his worshipers. Because listen, God is spirit. So the people who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The problem is when we make God act, think, speak, behave, interact like us, we have turned God into us. We've compared them with our human places and our human thinking and our human politics and our human issues and our human behaviors and our human pettiness and all of our human reasoning and understanding. And Jesus came to disrupt that and say, you cannot contain God like that. 
He is spirit. And that leads us to number three. I will never truly know God until I unpack the idols I carry by making God into more than he is. So listen, Jesus was a lot of things. He was a friend to all people. Jesus loved all people. He was an amazing storyteller. He was a brilliant teacher at the age of 12. He was confounding religious teachers in the temple with his questions and and things that he would say. And he was astounding them with how deeply he knew the scriptures. He was a prophet. He was a healer of the sick and the broken. He was a lover of the marginalized. He was a disruptor of religious manipulation. He loved pushing back on religious control. He would fight for injustice and abuse of people. He was a worker of miracles. He was a humble servant who was not beneath getting down on his knees and washing the feet of his own disciples or touching a leper and making himself among people who others would leave behind. And of course, he was the savior of the world. But listen to the way that he's described by the religious leaders of that day. Luke 23, one through five. Then they took Jesus to Pilate, the religious leaders, and began to bring up charges against him. And they said, we found this man to be undermining our law and order, forbidding taxes to be paid to Caesar, setting himself up as Messiah king, as a God king. And Pilate asked to Jesus, is this true that you're the king of the Jews? As they're saying, Jesus said, those are your words, not mine. Pilate then turned to the high priest and the accompanying crowd and he said, I find nothing wrong here. He seems harmless enough to me, but they were vehement. He's stirring up unrest among the people with his teaching, disturbing the peace everywhere, starting in Galilee and now all through Judea. He's a dangerous man endangering the peace. Jesus was none of the things that they said. They had made him out to a political instigator, an agitator. He wasn't. He didn't care about any of the politics, but he did push back on their religious formalities and the doctrines that controlled people. Jesus was a disruptor of the religious control, and so they hated him for it. They made him out to be an enemy of Caesar, of the king, the Roman king. He wasn't. As a matter of fact, he advocated that people pay their taxes and that they would honor authority. They made Jesus out to be a hungry, power, desperate despot who wanted to overthrow the government. He did not care about the kingdoms of men. He only taught about the eternal kingdom of God. We have to stop making God into more than he is so it gives us a reason to like him more. Or in a lot of cases, to not like him. We add things to God so that he stands in our corner on issues and so that he becomes our our hammer to go around and thump people on the head or we add things to God because it it makes it easier for us to dislike him and stay angry at him and keep a distance from him. And number four, I won't ever truly know God until I unpack the idols I carry by reducing God to less than he is. So just like we make God more than he is, we also make him less than he is. Because listen, if we acknowledge 
that God is all that he really is, then it obligates us to be like him. And so it serves our interest to reduce God, to make him smaller, to make him less than he is because then we are not held to that standard. For instance, he's more invested on, in our relationship than we are. You can put I am in your, relation, in your notes. I'm not gonna read all the passages, but I will say this, that Jesus said, there's no greater way to show your friendship than to lay down your life for your friends to give everything. Jesus says, I call you friends, and I call you friends because I've told you every single thing the Father told me. Let me ask you this, how much have you laid down for God? How much have you told God? How much do you talk to God? Just that alone tells you that God's more invested in your relationship than even you are. He's more involved in each moment of my life than I am. Bible says that uh, David, as he's praying to God, he says, you know absolutely everything there is about me. You know when I'm standing, you know where I'm sitting, you know every thought of me, you're ahead of me, you're behind me, you're all around me. Let me ask you this, do you know God? Do you know God's thoughts? Do you know God's word? Do you know God's presence when he's among you, when he's close to you? Do you know when things are distant between you and God because you've drifted in your times with him? He's more committed to saving the lost than I am. Jesus tells a story of a shepherd who sees his flock of 100 and he says, one goes away. What should a good shepherd do? And he says, that good shepherd shepherd leaves the 99, goes after the one and it says, and he celebrates the one coming back more than he celebrates the 99 staying put. But sometimes we've turned this into the celebration of staying put. We've lost our way sometimes. We've lost our mission. We've lost the priority of why Jesus came, which in Luke 19 says, the son of man, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus told the Pharisees, I'm here for the sick, not for the healthy. You don't need me. You know God, right? I'm here for those who don't. And he's more angered by injustice, neglect, and abuse than I am. Jesus gives this story of somebody who is, um, uh, he talks about himself and he says, and when I was hungry, you did this. And when I was thirsty, you didn't do this. And when I was naked, you didn't do this. And they said, Lord, when did we ever neglect your needs? And he said, when you have neglected these people, the least of them, the homeless and the hurting, the marginalized, the hated, the societal outcast, the social outcast, the abused and the hurt, the wounded. He said, you did all that to me because the way you treat them the least is the way you treat me. We have to acknowledge that God is far more than we want him to be sometimes because it helps make us more than we are. And fifth and finally is this. I won't ever, did you ever think that I could get a five point message done in... 22 minutes. Good, because I'm going to take like 15 on the last point. Just kidding. In Brooklyn, I believe you owe me money. Um, I won't ever truly know God until I unpack the idols I carry by forcing God into my brain-sized pocket. So Tim Houck, who is Pastor Dan's son, youngest son, 
And Pastor Dan is in a lot of pain this morning, threw his back out yesterday, so please pray for him. Um, Tim has been working here longer than anyone except me. I hired him when I was youth pastor here, six months into being here, so that's uh, 17 and a half years ago. And in that time, Tim has gotten his bachelor's degree, he's gotten his master's degree, and he's gotten his doctorate in philosophy. He's now a doctor of philosophy. He's a professor, a full-time professor at a college in Visalia, California. But he also, and he still works for us, by the way, isn't that awesome? And um, he does our graphics and our web and all that stuff. So Tim also has a YouTube channel called Thinking About Stuff in which he does these videos, short videos, that explain very big, difficult to understand philosophical ideas, concepts, teachings, and he reduces them down to bite-sized, tangible, relatable, understandable concepts. And the purpose of that is to take something that's intimidating and make it more accessible to people, make it less intimidating, less fearful for somebody to get into some of the, the deep weeds of philosophy. But Tim will tell you, those videos certainly do not replace the in-depth study or learning of philosophy. They're just brief introductions to ideas. If you really, really wanna get in deep into the weeds, you'd have to go take a college level course on philosophy. And I think it's the perfect comparison to how we know God. We use even moments like this, small groups, Bible studies, podcasts or books that we read, and we allow them to be the total sum of how we've come to know God. Listen, this is good. What we're doing here is good. We're exchanging and sharing the knowledge of God. And I believe that every time the word goes out, it doesn't return void or worthless. The Bible says that there's a profit to hearing this, that our faith increases every time we hear the word of God. But it also says that to know the word of God, to study it, it affects your life to engage with it, to really, and, and I'm not talking about necessarily some of the things that I see people argue about online and I see people lead whole Bible studies on, on what I think are just unsubstantial, insignificant details in the Bible that really don't communicate the struggle between God and man or God's relationship to us. But I think there's a lot of context that we should know about the Bible that'll make us more mature. That'll make us understand that sometimes you can't take it at face value. Sometimes you have to know a little bit more about it. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit deeper. You see, we want God to be understandable. We want him to fit into our thinking. We want him to be explainable. We want him to stay within the limits of our intellectual and emotional, even spiritual pockets. That way God can be predictable. We know what God thinks about this because I've told God what he's gonna think about this. We want him to be comparable. We want him to be like something else that we understand. We want him to be manageable because a God that we don't fully understand, a God that we 
have to believe that there is mystery that surrounds him. When we take him at his word, when he says, my ways are greater than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, there is never going to be a way that you and I are going to fully, totally know God because if you can know God completely, then he is not God. He's just a really, really, really great person. But God is not contained by the laws of physics, by space, or time. You can only be one place at one time. God can be in all places at all time, meaning God can be present in the year 1800 and be present at the same time in the year 2800. You and I can't understand how that would be possible, but the creator of time and space certainly could do whatever he wants. You see, if God is small enough for us to manage, then we can predict him and we can let him know when he fails us by not meeting our predictions or our expectations. And that's exactly what the disciples did in Mark 4, 37 through 40. It says this, a wild storm came up. Jesus and the disciples were on a boat. Waves crashed over the boat. It was about to sink. And Jesus was in the back sleeping on a cushion. I love that. And the disciples woke him up and they said, teacher, rabbi, don't you even care if we drown? And he got up and he ordered the wind to stop and he said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And then he turned to his disciples and said, why are you so afraid? Don't you have any faith? Let me plug something in here, in me at all yet. Jesus was challenging the thinking of the disciples that they had given to Jesus motives. Jesus is sleeping and they're already attacking his motives. You're sleeping, so you must not care. Jesus is like, I was tired. How did you turn a nap into me not caring if you drowned? But more importantly, how did you think that we were going to drown with me here? Faith is what enables us to move God out of our intellectual, emotional, spiritual expectations, all of the pockets we put him in that make him small enough for us to understand. Faith removes him from all of those and allows him to be fully God, to be the one who can sleep in a storm and we follow his lead and we think, I wanna wake him up and yell at him for not doing what I think he should be doing. Because when we're in crisis, we have a role for God to play, don't we? When I'm sick, you should be doing, you should have stopped this, first of all. And now that you didn't stop it, you should be working on getting me better. We've got all these lists of things that we want God to do because that's a manageable God that we can tell how to behave because we understand that God is our genie in a bottle and we call on him when we need him. 
We put God into the pocket of our finances and we say, when things are good, God, you get a tip. You're like a lounge singer at a piano bar. You sing the tunes I like and I'll put money in the snifter. And when you don't, when finances aren't good, when you're not blessing me, when you're not rewarding me, I hold back because you need to bless me in order for me to bless you. See, these are all the things that we express our faithlessness through. And Jesus' own disciples had him fit squarely in their pockets. And Jesus loves to disrupt all of that. Can you see all of these idols that we've built? We put a capital G on these little G gods that we carry around. Sure, we call them by the same name, we say it's Jesus, we say it's God the Father, we, 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 we assign to these little idols all the attributes that we think make these idols into God, but you can't take an idol, you can't take a little G God and just erase the little G and then take your magic marker and put a big G. They're still not. And just like the gods of Hinduism and like the Allah of Islam, and like all the other false gods that have plagued the planet for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years are not truly God. Neither are the little g gods that we've made him out to be. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning so that you can have a moment between you and him? Here's the amazing thing about him. He loves you more than you've ever loved anything or anyone. You will never wrap your mind around how much God loves you. And he knows you. He knows the things you've thought this week and the things you've said and the things you've done and his love for you has not diminished at all. And he wants you. I mean, he wants friendship with you and he wants relationship with you. And he wants trust from you and he wants to be believed in by you. He wants to have your faith in your heart and your mind because he has the best in store for you. He has purpose and destiny and dreams and a plan that prosper you and don't harm you. And he knows that without him, your life doesn't take on the meaning or the value or the blessing that it's supposed to. And so, yes, he wants relationship with you. And you don't, if you don't have relationship with him, I want to challenge you. You can have that with nothing less or nothing more than just saying, God, I want to know you. I want a relationship with you. I want to believe in you right there where you're at, right now. You don't need to go through some class. You don't need to be introduced by me to him. Just you calling out to him in your heart, in your mind, he will meet you where you're at. And for those who think you know him, you might realize this morning that you've known the little G version of him. This idol that you've created in your heart because of hearsay or because of the limits that you've put on to him or for all the other reasons we talked about today in which we've made these idols of him because we don't yet know him. We know about him, 
but we don't know him. And I want to challenge you. You can know God. Jesus said that is where our salvation comes from, to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. Father, my prayer for every single person in this room is that in our space, in this moment in time, that we would call out to know you, whether we've never had a relationship with you before, or we believe that we've been having a relationship with you all along, and we think, man, I might be guilty of following little g gods. But today, I want that to change. I want to chase after the God of the capital G. I want to get rid of all these idols, all these expectations, all these perversions of who God is. Follow you, God. That's my prayer for every single heart in this room. And I believe for it, thanking you now in advance in Jesus' name. Amen.